Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Welcome to this edition of the Voices podcast. I'm here with Eli Friedman, who is Assistant Professor of International and Comparative Labour at Cornell University. We're going to talk about his book, The Urbanization of People. The focus of the book is migrant schools for the children of rural to urban migrant workers, particularly in Beijing, China. But in many ways, the book defies categorization, covering issues of labor, urbanization, development, real estate, the global economy, and more. Welcome, Eli. Thanks for having me. Sure. So I thought maybe let's start, um, if you could just describe a little about a bit about the population who are at the center of the book. So the migrant workers who've moved to cities within China and their children. China has a somewhat unusual citizenship regime um, where it's structured really at the level of the city. So if you move from one place to another, you give up uh, rights to access social services. Uh, this is enforced uh, through uh, uh, an institution called HUCO. And uh, during the period of market reform in China, uh, lots of people have had to leave rural, rural areas and move to cities uh, to get jobs. And so now you currently have a population of about 300 million people who are living out of their place of HUCO registration. So this is a huge population, even in the context uh, of China. It's really the, the backbone uh, of the working class today. And they're typically slotted into less desirable kinds uh, of jobs. Their children, when they come along with them to the cities, because of this HUCO system, are not guaranteed access to, to public education in the city. And so what we've seen over the, the course of the last 15, 20 years is an increasing number of migrant children who are coming along to cities with their parents rather than staying alone back in the countryside. So this is really, uh, in my view, one of the, the key social problems that Chinese cities are facing today. Okay. And what types of industries are these workers in? I presume it's multiple different types of industries. Yeah, it really varies. And it is important to note that this is a diverse group of people, um, that you have some migrants who are who are not locals who end up doing very well and are working in white collar jobs and, uh, you know, in tech and finance and what have you. That's, that's the exception. Um, all of the, the export processing manufacturing that China is famous for, uh, that is overwhelmingly populated by these migrant workers um, who of course can be paid less uh, and subjected to kinds of conditions that urban workers would not accept. Um, the, the construction industry is almost entirely uh, migrant workers. So when we think about real estate development, we think about infrastructure development in China, it's migrant workers who are, who are doing that. But all kinds of service sector has been growing much more quickly in China. And so if we look at um, restaurants, uh, uh, hospitality, uh, domestic workers are almost entirely um, female migrant workers, security guards, uh, you know, informal workers selling things on the streets, all of these are, are largely migrant workers. Got it. And you're a labor researcher and you set out initially to study the working conditions of the teachers in the migrant workers children's schools. Um, and then you came to realize that urbanization itself needed to be a part of the book, the processes of urbanization within China. Why was that? 
I did. Yeah, I'm, I'm trained as a labor sociologist. And uh, my first book was focusing on those manufacturing workers. I was interested in this transformation in China's economy, where, as I just indicated a second ago, more and more migrant workers are going into the, the service sector. And, and actually, there are more people uh, who work as teachers in China than there are as, as factory workers. And this is something that labor scholars have not really paid attention to. So that's why I decided to do that. And I was going to look at uh, at both public schools as well as schools that serve the children of migrant workers, because I thought that they would be sociologically interesting. When I got to the migrant schools, what I realized was the labor conditions were very bad. The, the working hours were long. The pay was abysmal, below minimum wage. Work, the, the teachers did not get benefits. Um, but when I asked them what their major problem was at work, they were mostly not complaining about those typical labor conditions. The thing that they said that really surprised me was the biggest problem we face is the uneven abilities of our students. And so I dug a little bit deeper and it turned out that there was just constant churn, constant turnover of students. It was not unusual for a third of the student body to leave every year. And in order to have an account of why that was the case and how it was then reflected in the workplace for teachers, I had to go outside of the classroom. I had to understand something about those families, why they were constantly moving around, why sometimes the schools themselves were constantly relocating in the process of urban redevelopment. So in essence, I got pulled out of the workplace. I had to have this bigger account for, for what was happening in the urbanization process, even in order to understand what was happening for teachers. Okay, that makes sense. And one thing that really stood out to me in the book was the concept of just-in-time urbanization that you describe uh, building off of Toyota's just-in-time supply chains. Can you elaborate a bit on why you landed on that concept? Sure. Um, so the, the overarching question that motivated the rest of the book uh, was to try to understand how cities, and in particular mega cities like Beijing, which is where I did most of my research, are regulating the flows of people in and out of the city. And I hit upon this extended analogy with uh, just-in-time production, which developed as part of uh, the Toyota production system in the mid-20th century. The person who is most responsible in developing just-in-time production for Toyota is a guy named Taichi Ono. And he describes just in time as being about delivering parts in just the right qualities and just the right quantities. And this is all in an effort to reduce waste. Now, of course, they're talking about auto parts. So I draw this extended analogy between the just in time production as it, as it existed for Toyota and thinking about these mega cities as being as like the lead firm in a production system and thinking about how they regulate the movement of, of labor, which is a commodity for them in and out of the cities. And what I saw was that cities were developing a whole series uh, of techniques to try to evaluate the, 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 the kinds of labor that was coming and the kinds of workers and to extend um, social protections and social services just to those workers that were deemed to be of the right quality and to do it just in the right quantity in this kind of ongoing and dynamic way. And the reduction of waste in this metaphor is to say those moments when people are not being productive according to the city's developmental goals that, that urban elites have established, 
they can then be shunted back to the rural countryside to, to smaller cities out of those uh, out of those really big cities and so they don't have to pay for you know medical care for old age pensions they also don't have to pay for the formation of those workers um, that is taking place in other places. So, so for the cities, it's it's really a great deal to kind of bring these workers in on on a as needed basis. Thinking about the migrant schools themselves, um, in terms of their structure, the design of the schools, the materials, and then um, I come through to each of these elements from a human rights perspective. So, thinking about the right to physical and mental health of the students who are studying in these schools, um, what's the quality of the buildings like and what are the impact, impacts of those buildings on the um, health of the students who are studying there? there there's big impacts on, on the uh, psychological and physical well-being of students. I just want to take a brief step back to understand what a migrant school is. So in, in contrast to the public school, school system, and if you're in a city like Beijing, like Shanghai, these wealthy, large cities, the public school system is actually pretty good and, and better, I would say, on average than the public school system in large American cities. But the migrant population who in some of these cities constitutes, you know, up to a third of the population um, is not guaranteed access to it. So the, the migrant schools are fully privatized schools that receive little or no support from the government. But they're fully privatized schools that serve a working class and poor um, market in essence, right? And so the tuition dollars of these working class people can't buy a very good school, right? So, so that's the problem. And, and as a result of it, the physical infrastructure uh, of these schools by and large is, is quite bad. Uh, I was in lots of places in Beijing, which is, you know, a fabulously wealthy city that has all kinds of, you know, skyscrapers, a better subway system than, than New York City. Um, and you would kind of go out to the periphery and these very ramshackle buildings, many of them did not did not have indoor plumbing, there was just a, an outhouse. Um, they did not have centralized heat. So in the winter, they'd just be burning coal. So you can imagine that has uh, an impact on, on students. Um, in the summer, um, they were extremely hot. Beijing gets very, very hot in, in the summer. Um, one of the schools that I was in had uh, asbestos tiling, um, which the teachers were complaining about made things hotter, but there's also asbestos, uh, which was in the building. Um, so, uh, so it presented all, all, all kinds of uh, uh, health risks uh, to the students. Um, and, you know, other cases where there was holes in the roof and there's rain coming in while the students are, are, are taking uh, an exam. Um, and uh, and th th that's not even to get into the, to the kind of the emotional and psychological problems that, that students faced, um, which were more kind of social in nature, but I think kind of reflected by the, the physical infrastructure as well. So building off of what you were saying about the quality of the buildings and the impact on students' health, are there uh, other health issues that the students and their parents have been working on or, or, or trying to advocate for change around? One really interesting um, point is around the question of air quality. Uh, Beijing has, has famously terrible air. Uh, the level of particulate matter is extremely high and it poses all kinds of severe health risks, uh, you know, both kind of immediate asthma as well as longer term issues of, of uh, lung cancer and things like that. Um, so there's there's this very great uh, development uh, parents uh, of children in, in public schools, so full Beijing residents uh, mobilized around this and and one forced the government to install high quality air filters in all of the public schools. 
Um, this was in the pre-COVID era, so uh, obviously today there's it's even more important to have those high-quality air filters. This did not happen for the migrant schools, and that's because they're not considered part uh, of the Department of Education's responsibilities, and they don't have the resources uh, to, to install that, those kinds of facilities. So it's just a really poignant example, I think, of how uh, the inequalities in education manifest not just in terms of the the quality of, of the teachers uh, or, or the pedag pedagogy, but even in the health consequences uh, for the children. 100%. I, I see that playing out here in New York City as well, where where I live in terms of disparities in the quality of the buildings where, um, you know, students are studying and then access to um, re resources fundamentally, um, absolutely playing out as well. You talk about the hard edge of urbanization and maybe the extremes of what is causing some of the disruption in the students' lives, which is the demolitions of the school buildings and closures as well. Um, do those happen often? And, and what are some of the causes that are behind them? So there's, in terms of the, the bigger problem in a sense is the, the administrative arrangements, which work very quietly, are oftentimes not very spectacular, but one by one, these migrant families are kind of sifted away from the city because they can't meet the administrative requirements to get their children into public schools. And those, those requirements are quite high and, and have gotten higher over the last 15 or 20 years. But uh, they're often paralleled by this, this kind of much more spectacular and violent forms um, of expulsion represented by these school demolitions. And this was actually how I got attuned to the significance of migrant schools in Beijing. In the summer uh, of 2011, there were uh, at least two dozen schools for migrant workers, or for, for, for migrant children that were demolished uh, in the weeks leading up to the beginning of the semester. And, and estimates were the schools. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was huge. It was it was a concerted campaign, um, and estimates uh, were that up to thirty thousand students um, lost their place in school. They then it was already past the registration date, so it was very difficult for them to get into other schools. Um, and you know this caught national and and international um, attention. Um, that kind of intensified spate of demolitions was not repeated. They got a lot of blowback domestically uh, as well as internationally. Um, but uh, I've done some research and just based on publicly available sources, uh, which are ap absolutely an undercount, um, I've identified at least 87 schools that were demolished uh, just in the city of Beijing between uh, 2010 and 2018. Um, and the, the actual number is, is certainly much higher. And of course that's affected many tens of thousands of students. Um, so it's, it's a huge problem. They happen for different reasons. Sometimes they happen just because they've decided that they wanna get that population out of the neighborhood. Sometimes it's kind of a more straightforward economic logic uh, where the value of that land has, has gone up and they don't see the migrant school as contributing to the value of the city. They wanna build high rises or a shopping mall or, uh, or what have you. Um, but both of those things were pushing in the same direction. The value of land has been going up a lot in Beijing and the government has become less tolerant of what they see as the negative social impact of uh, of these outsiders. Um, it's this kind of nativist sentiment. They've both been pushing the same direction towards getting people out of the city. Uh, and, and, and so they're, they're actually, the government has been at times quite explicit that they see controlling access to education as a primary lever in controlling 
population growth overall. Okay. Um, and thinking about the migrant workers' own attitudes towards these demolitions and closures, um, is there any sense of agency participation? You mentioned that there was some like international exposure, there was local protests when they happened on a large scale. Um, but as this is happening on a recurring basis, how would you categorize the ways in which migrant workers are uh, responding and trying to shift the dynamic that's affecting them and their children? Well, there's no question that people are angry. Um, and anyone, any any parent, you don't have to be a parent <laughs> to understand this experience, but uh, you know, being told that your kid's uh, school is gonna be demolished um, is incredibly disruptive to people's lives. It takes a lot to set up a life, to have a house, to have a job, to have a school, and to be able to get those three points in some kind of relative proximity such that uh, you know you can manage uh, bo both your life and, and your work. And, um, and so when, when, when these schools are demolished, it's incredibly disruptive. Um, there are fewer and fewer migrant schools that exist in the city of Beijing, and so there are maybe not good options there. Um, you can't just kind of find another one easily right in the neighborhood. And the restrictions on public schools remain quite high. And so the chances that after a school is demolished, you'll be able to just get your child into uh, a public school is also quite, quite low. So oftentimes it means having to leave the city altogether. Maybe one of the parents leaves the city uh, and goes back to the countryside uh, with the child, thereby splitting up the family. It's also quite common to send children back to the countryside alone. And, and you have this phenomenon of, of left behind children. As of a few years ago, there were 60 million children in China uh, who were living without either one or both of their parents and either being taken care of by extended family or by, by grandparents. And you know this is obviously a suboptimal uh, situation in terms of uh, psychological development as well as, as, well as their education. So, so it's, it, it's extremely disruptive. Sometimes parents, um, uh, are are able to organize, are able to fight back, and there have been some cases um, that are inspiring. They go to the government and they they protest collectively, and some kinds of arrangements are made. Um, you see some some desperate individual protests. Uh, there have been cases in in the city of Beijing of parents um, self-immolating, other parents going out and just lying down in the middle of traffic. Um, uh, just as a way of bringing attention to it. Um, and, you know, those, those are less inspiring, but people are in desperate situations. Um, on the whole, though, I, there, is, there is also a sentiment that, um, that, it's, that there's not much to be done, right? That this constant redevelopment of the city is just kind of a fact of life. And so stopping constant redevelopment is, is really beyond, I think, the imagination of most, of most parents. And the question for them is not, can we prevent this, but can we get a somewhat better deal out of, um, you know, out of this demolition? And, and sometimes it happens and, and, and sometimes it really doesn't. And it, it can be quite devastating for families. Big forces at play, absolutely. Um, and speaking of constant development, so a lot of the sort of driving force behind these processes is the role of real estate within China's economy writ large, you could say. So zooming out to look at that, you know, recently the collapse or default of the property develop developer Evergrande and experiences of people who have bought unfinished apartments that's also rippling through um, and affecting other property developers. 
in the country have been making global headlines because there's global investment at stake here as well. Um, in what ways, if, if any, are you seeing this prompting rethinking about the role of real estate itself as a sector in China's development? Um, and building off from that, perhaps, would that then have any potential implications for um, urban migrant workers? Yeah, the the Evergrande uh, situation and all and everything that's surrounding it uh, is is a huge story for China, and there have been elements within the Chinese state that have been trying to wean themselves off of their dependence on real estate, but also just investment led growth more broadly uh, for a long time. And this process of the urbanization of people that I, that I write about is is part of this. So the one of the things that they want to do is they want more people to move to cities to have this kind of you know, very dynamic, very globally competitive service sector. They want to do, you know, they definitely want to do tech and finance. They want to do arts. They want to do education. Um, and so that gets them to move away a little bit from that dependence uh, on real estate. Um, one of the problems here uh, is that local governments who are, who are tasked with enforcing this are extremely dependent on property deals in order to finance themselves. Um, and this has to do with the particular fiscal arrangements uh, that have emerged in China over the last couple of decades. There's no property tax in China, except for two pilots that they did in the city of Shanghai and the city of Chongqing. Um, so they don't generate ongoing revenue, right? The only way that they can generate revenue is by land is nominally held by the state. And so they take a parcel of land and they auction it off for they they give land use rights for some long period of time to a developer the developer builds a house or builds an apartment and then the the apartments that are that sit on top of that land are privately owned by uh, by the owners when they auction it off is when they get this big is when city governments get this big windfall um and so and the the the, the taxes that are generated from that is absolutely essential in financing local services um, which means that local governments have a strong vested interest in this property bubble continuing to go up. It's also a little bit complicated here because to the extent that they wanted to move to a different model of growth, and this is something the central government has been talking about for 20 years, it would need to be predicated on more domestic consumption. How do you get people, including migrant workers, to spend more? Well, you have to expand the social safety net, right? You need to guarantee access to public education, to healthcare, and especially to pensions. Local governments are the ones who are responsible for financing all those things because China does not really have a national social security system. As I said, social citizen, citizenship is structured at the level of the city. How are they going to fund it without these constantly rising real estate prices, right? So there's a bit of a catch-22. The way out of it is really for the central government to take a much bigger hand in terms of regional redistribution uh, of fiscal capacities. But in order to do that, that's a big political fight because then the central government has to go to each local government and say, you have to give up your pension funds, which might be valued at many billions of dollars or tens of billions of dollars in, in large cities. You have to give up your, your, your taxation rights, and we're going to centralize all of that, and we're going to take a lot of that away from the largest and wealthiest and most politically powerful parts of the country and send them to these, these kind of backwaters, right? So that's a real kind of political transition. The real estate bubble is... It, seems to now finally be coming down. We'll, we'll see how it develops, but it certainly cannot go up forever. It is it is sort of a, a bubble of absolute historic magnitude. So 
a day of reckoning is is certainly coming. It's fascinating in that I'm I, there are so many parallels. While your research is very focused on China and particularly on Beijing through the program that I lead on the built environment, the dynamic of needing revenue from real estate um, and local governments, you know, dependent on that revenue and therefore the role of real estate shaping in many many ways the development trajectory of cities um, it plays out in so many ways globally and at the same time um, the way in which migrant workers in different sectors can often be seen as a separate population in terms of housing of migrant workers location within the city so, so many dimensions like that um, see play out in many other contexts so zooming out to global dimensions of your research um, I'm interested in a couple the first is what do you see as some of the links between those processes that you describe in your book and China's role within the global economy I know you touched on this a little bit in the book um, at various levels I do it's it, it's a, a big and complicated question but just just a couple points so <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> One thing that's happened uh, over the last, uh, you know, especially the last decade is that China's economic growth has, of course, been quite successful. Um, but you do have these big over accumulations of industrial capacity uh, that have developed. Um, and and um, one of the responses to that has been what's called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a big complex thing, but basically think of it as the central government pushing uh, Chinese capital to invest uh, overseas as a way of kind of dealing with some of those uh, th those surpluses, but also as a way of conquering new markets, of building new infrastructure that increases China's centrality in global networks of trade uh, and, and production. That's led to all kinds of other problems, including geopolitics, bringing it into conflict with, with regional players uh, in, in South Asia. The China-India relationship has gotten much more tense, but also, of course, uh, with the United States. And we see a real intensification and worsening of the rivalry between the US and China. With respect to the, the, the question of migration and, and human movement, which, which is really at the center of the book, uh, I conclude uh, the book by doing this kind of this very brief um, and uh, and not fully fleshed out, frankly, a comparison thinking about other big countries that have undergone the process of industrialization um, going back to the 19th century. And one of the things that we see that's really different for China than was the case for uh, European countries uh, or, or North America um, was, was the closing of the borders in the post-World War II order. Right. So if you think about when England or France or Germany or even the United States were going through this rapid process of industrialization, emigration played a really key role. Right. So we have the settler society, settler colonial societies in North America. And if you look at population growth uh, in, in England over the course of the 19th century, huge percentages of that population were just going to, to North America, going to Australia. Um, it was also a way to deal, it's a way to deal with populations that cannot be kept alive. It's also a way to deal with political problems, right? So if you think of penal colonies in, in Australia, I mean, you know, England's just kind of saying, we're going to put this problem on the other side of the world. Um, and the United States is a little different because it's a westward expansion, but in, in sort of nominally what is, what is uh, you know, just one country, but you have these big spaces where you can relocate people from the east and from the south further west. 
China doesn't have that possibility. So we have 1.4 billion people, but mass immigration is not possible. They can't just relocate lots of people to Southeast Asia, uh, to, to Africa. Um, and so what that means is that they're sending a lot of capital overseas, but they really can't send that many workers overseas. If you look at the, the numbers pre-COVID, it was roughly a million Chinese workers that were on these overseas uh, Chinese invested projects. And a million sounds like a lot in a country of 1.4 billion people. That's, you know, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, and so what that means is that this, this process of managing human movement, which is really what, what the book is about, um, China has to do or has developed, I don't know if they have to, but they has de have developed these very kind of precise and technocratic ways of regulating who can live in which spaces at, at what time in a way that European countries just didn't, because when there was a problem, they were just like, go to America, right? Uh, and, and so that creates some very different kinds of political dynamics. The second part of my global question is, what do you see as some of the implications of or connections between your research on cities within China with cities in other regions that are facing really high levels of internal migration, um, so from one part of the country into large urban areas. Yeah, uh, of course, the question of rural to urban migration has been a huge issue for countries, particularly in the global south over the last you know, 50, 60 plus years um, in, in Asia and Africa and Latin America. Um, and you know, it's worth noting um, that a lot of cities in, in other countries in the global south, there's actually some appeal to them, at least to urban elites in the Chinese model. Because you go to Chinese cities and they look mm -hmm. orderly and clean and very developed, right, with infrastructure that in many cases is, is better than is the case uh, in, in Western Europe or North America. Um, and so, so there is some real appeal um, to, uh, again, to those urban elites. Um, even if we are okay with the ethical implications of having these kind of rigid and inherited forms uh, of inequality, I think it's worth noting from the outset that other countries cannot do what China has done, right? India does not have the tools to do this. Indonesia does not have the tools to do this, right? Nigeria does not have the tools to do this. And I'm not saying that these are good tools. But these are tools that have been developed over many decades from the state socialist period up through the period uh, of marketization. And, and I don't think any other state has the, the capacity to manage human movement as tightly as China does. And that's, again, putting aside the question of, of whether it's a good thing or not. Um, assuming we do want to consider the human rights implication or, or the ethics of this. Um, the first thing to note is that it, it's not just that, that the the we can't just look at these visible manifestations of slums, which, you know, are, slums are a real problem, right? You, you go to lots of places and, and these are not good places for people to live. What China has done, I think, quite effectively is compartmentalized human suffering away from these urban cores, right? Into rural areas, into smaller cities. Um, and so, you know, they haven't necessarily dealt with, with those problems in, in a really robust way. And so if we're thinking about a, a pattern of urban development, we have to think about the way that it interacts, not just with the cities at the, the apex of these socio-spatial hierarchies, we need to think about them in relationship to all of the smaller provincial cities, to the rural hinterlands. And, and you need a, a, a nationally, at least a regionally, if not a nationally 
coordinated model of development that is not based on just funneling the best, you know, the best public resources and funneling wealth in general to the apex of that socio-spatial hierarchy. That's what they've done in China. And so it leaves these vast swaths uh, of the country that are really underserved. And, and education is, I think, a good window uh, onto that. A pretty small percentage of people in rural China even complete high school, um, whereas you go to the city of Beijing and they have amazing, you know, not just uh, primary and secondary education, but some of the best universities in the world there that are much easier for Beijing citizens to get into. So, so I think just, you know, considering the way that these different places relate to each other is, is really important. Absolutely. And you began bringing it back there to schools and education as a site for research and for me, certainly, um, in many ways, thinking about the built environment and the role that school buildings have um, in any given urban area. It's a really fundamental one. And um, I think they can play a very illustrative role in so many ways if you take the school building itself sort of as a site of study. Um, it looks like your decision to focus specifically on schools took you in some directions that surprised you. Uh, are you pleased with how this interdisciplinary journey turned out so far and what's next for your research? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm happy with it. Uh, you know, I started out as a labor scholar and had to kind of on the fly learn how to um, at least pretend to be an education scholar and, a, and a, an urban scholar. Um, we'll see what education scholars, real <laughs> education and urban scholars, uh, make of the book. And um, but but I, I for me it's been it's been a really great journey, and it 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 really pushed me to think I think in in deeper and more more complex sorts of ways how uh, the workplace, how spatial dynamics, and how processes of of education and social reproduction all interact in, in real. Um, in really important ways. Um, and so, you know, as, as a lot of qualitative researchers um, and ethnographers will tell you, you go to the field and, and it sometimes takes you in, in surprising directions. Um, but, but ultimately, I, I, it fits together for me. And I think that these different component parts are really add uh, to each other. So we'll see what others make of it. Um, in terms of the question of what's next for research, unfortunately, a lot has changed in China since I completed the fieldwork. Uh, there's obviously the COVID situation. Um, it's impossible to get into China now. Uh, but the, the longer term problem is the political situation. And frankly, um, I'm not going to be able to uh, go back to China anytime soon to do research. Um, there's there's no uh, local universities there that would be willing to sponsor uh, my research. So I've been undergoing a long process of trying to figure out how to be a China scholar <laughs> without going to China. Um, and what I'm the project that I've just started uh, in in the past couple of months is looking at how China's incorporation into global capitalism over the last 40 years has impacted workers in surrounding societies. And so I'm, I'm beginning by looking at uh, doing a comparative study of Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, and Singapore. These are places that obviously developed uh, more quickly than China um, and have incredibly deep economic ties uh, to China that have deepened a lot over uh, that 40 year period. Um, there's been a huge amount of research on how those societies have impacted China's development with transfer of technology uh, and investment uh, really fueling growth in China, um, but much less research in terms of looking at that kind of backwards movement, how this 
you know, global shock of, of China's uh, integration into the economy has, has, has kind of reverberated back into those societies. So that's, that's what's next for me. I'm sure that's going to be an interesting journey, and I'm sure you're going to bring some really fascinating perspectives to that wider context as well. So thank you so much, Eli, and your book, The Urbanization of People, is published by Columbia University Press. I imagine that all the listeners of this podcast will be taking away a lot of food for thought from this conversation and be rushing out to read the full book. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much.